the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. On today's edition of the program, we've got a very special guest in studio. He's kind of a boomerang, a boomerang in the sense that he began life in the San Francisco Bay Area, wound up in the center of the country, eventually ministered for quite a number of years on the East Coast, and has now bounced all the way back to the San Francisco Bay Area. He is Pastor Herman Hamilton, founder and senior pastor at New Beginnings Community Church of Mountain View. And Pastor Hamilton, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you for the privilege of being here with you. Now, you've got to tell us a bit of the story, that you're sort of the boomerang kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never you. thought about it that way, but that's a, that's a wonderful way of describing it. You, uh, <laughs> You were born here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yes, I was. I was. I was. I was born. Uh, uh, I was the fourth of four kids uh, born um, uh, early '60s. Uh, kind of shocking to say that, but that's actually when I came around. And um, when I uh, was about six months of age, I broke out with infantile rash in my uh, head, and uh, so did my sister uh, next to me. And the doctor gave us the right medicine, uh, diagnosed it correctly, and uh, she got better, I got worse, and uh, went back. He figured just doubled the dosage. And my uh, mom, uh, all she knew was that her six-month-old baby boy was just gouging his scalp. So she covered my head with bandages one day. She unwrapped it to discover that I had been allergic to the medicine that had actually mm-hmm. helped to heal my sister. And so it literally cooked my scalp, um, and she just unwrapped layers of skin. And they rushed me to San Francisco General. Uh, while they were frantically working on my head, uh, they spilled stuff in both eyes, damaging both of my eyes. And my heart stopped beating, so I'm told, because of the trauma. But, uh, you know, I had a praying grandmother in the hall. And um, long before I knew who Jesus was and is, he knew what he wanted to do with me. And so he spoke, and the doctors did what they do, and I'm here to talk about it all these many years later. So not only the boomerang kid, but a miracle baby at absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I stayed in the hospital for a year, literally, in that day and time, uh, because they had to perform skin grafts to kind of reconstruct my scap. And, um, and I was growing, so I had to do it in stages. So I literally stayed in the hospital for one year. When I got out, my parents had divorced. My dad had disowned me, and my mom had taken deathly ill. Uh, No one wanted to keep me because I was still pretty sickly. And my grand-aunt, who lived in Louisiana, Cushana, Louisiana, a little small town in North Louisiana, said, if you can get him to me, I'll keep him. Wow. And uh, my grand-aunt, this is a fascinating story, she had uh, been praying to have children for years and ultimately told she couldn't, and she had helped to raise my mother through some very traumatic teenage years. And so my grand was just being generous. And uh, so they got me to Cushana, Louisiana, and I stayed there a few years till my mom could get back on her feet. When she came back, uh, she made the courageous decision to leave me with my grand and let her. And my grand was married to a Baptist minister and to let the two of them raise me as their own child. And, uh, 
spent your formative years growing up in a part of the country that was still feeling a lot of the strife, uh, not only at the height of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. but to a degree, there, there's kind of a, a bad reputation, so to speak, in that part of Louisiana. You're sure. about an hour outside of Shreveport. Absolutely. That particular town that you grew up in um, had a reputation. Absolutely. Uh, particularly in relationship to some uh, violence and unrest that was post Civil War that mm-hmm. continued in. What was it like growing up in that kind of an environment, contrasting that to the difference that we see in the San Francisco Bay Area? Absolutely. Well, you know, my class, my uh, first grade class, which was 1970, we were the first integrated class in the history of Cushata and Red River Paris. Huge amount of drama uh, around that. And uh, the great success story is that when I graduated in 1982, that class made it all the way through. Uh, Needless to say, everything was looked at through the lens of race. Uh, Early on in my first, I don't know, until maybe the sixth, seventh grade, we used to have to do everything. Uh, We had a black homecoming queen. We had a white homecoming queen. We had It was a black and white version of everything uh, as people were trying to make the transition. So it had its challenges, its complexities, but... What I really like to always share is that I started off in special education, partly because um, I was uh, had some learning deficiencies in math, uh, although I started first grade reading on a fifth grade level, uh, but mainly because as a scarred kid, I was acting out horrendously. And one of the ways that they dealt with you back then was you'd more likely end up in special education if you were a kid of color who was acting out tremendously in class. And I had an African-American teacher for two years who recognized that I was uh, gifted uh, and um, let me help her teach the class and mm. reading and stuff. Third grade, I had a white teacher, Ms. Gahagan, who recognized that I was gifted and I was in the wrong place. She went to bat for me and fought for me and got me out of into a mainstreaming process. And uh, that has always helped to kind of define my understanding of race. started really early uh, of uh, just understanding that you just can't label people because of uh, the color of their skin or the history that you're familiar with. And uh, that set me on an amazing course all the way through eighth grade. I was in some form or another of mainstreaming. Uh, and then I met the Lord personally in the eighth grade and really changed my life. Looking back, does it surprise you that the kid from Cushata, Louisiana, that was not of your own will, attending special ed classes later on in adult life, becomes an adjunct professor at, at, at um, uh, Harvard University and Gordon Cromwell. I mean, Amen. Amen. <laughs> talk about God's grace. It shows that God can do anything with anybody. <laughs> but it is, it is surprising and it is awesome and it is all the glory goes to God. And an enormous amount of credit goes to my grand-aunt and grand-uncle who poured the best years of the second half of their lives into trying to raise me. And they had a really tough time. I mean, all the way up through the eighth grade, I always said that um, uh, I got in as much trouble as I could find. And when I ran out of trouble, I created trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they struggled through those tough years with me, praying and and uh, feeding me God's word and challenging me and loving me and disciplining me. And uh, God used all of that to uh, really turn my life into a miracle. Does it also give you perspective in terms of ministry? And, and I ask that question, I, I think of the story of Franklin Graham, for example, yes. son of Billy Graham. Here's this 
internationally known evangelist, Bible teacher, well-respected on every continent, and yet Franklin Graham was nothing but a leather-wearing, motorcycle-riding, cigarette-smoking, booze-drinking troublemaker. Yeah. For so many of his early formative years, no doubt a sense of rebellion against dad. And then you fast forward 40-something years, and now he's running the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Absolutely. Well, it is a reminder that, you know, that's why I just believe so much in Jesus. At the end of the day, uh, the heart of the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done on Calvary's cross, uh, shedding and pouring out of his life, uh, to give us a reprieve, to pay the price for all the things that fill our lives with shame and guilt. Uh, he pays the price of that, and then he says to you, says to me, uh, if you will trust me and give me what's left of your life, I'll take your misery and turn it into a miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my story. That's my story. And uh, that's really at the heart of my passion, the heart of what we do at the church. We are trying to reach people who feel far from God, with that extraordinary message that Jesus literally can change. I mean, Jesus changed. When I say change my life, I'm not just talking about in an in a interior spiritual way, uh, which absolutely was the case. But uh, in every way that I can think of, um, um, spiritually and uh, economically and academically and just socially, um, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. If you've just joined our conversation, today in studio is the founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church. Pastor Herman Hamilton is with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our very special visit today with Pastor Herman Hamilton, founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church located in Mountain View. More information, by the way, on the web about the church and the ministry at nbccbayarea.com. That's nbccbayarea.com. We were talking, Pastor Hamilton, before the break about some of your uh, your roots growing up in Louisiana, some of the challenges that you face not only physically, but also scholastically. And I, I'm struck by the fact that you pointed to the impact of two teachers in your life, um, the folks that raised you, your great aunt and uncle, who was also a pastor. Would it be fair to say that parenting, pastoring, mentoring were key components to bring you from where you were as a child and many of the challenges that you faced not only, again, physically, but also growing up in, in a, a relatively racially backward or difficult part of the, the mm-hmm. country in a, in a difficult period of our history to bring you to where you're at today. How key was that mentoring, pastoring, and parenting in your life? Very key, and I love the way you put it. Actually, because it, it's, it requires a partnership, really. And uh, my grand-uncle and aunt, they, uh, they had me in church on every uh, Sunday, on every Wednesday night, on every Friday night. Uh, to my total uh, chagrin, uh, but <laughs> but they in, they in, insisted that. But what they modeled for me was extraordinary. I mean, uh, I, any given morning or a given night, uh, I'd see them on their knees praying. Um, uh, I watched my grand aunt uh, just pour herself out to people who uh, didn't care much for. But she responded with grace and love. She's putting the gospel. So 
it wasn't just that I was in church. I saw the impact of church on their lives. That's first of all. Secondly, um, I think there's a statistic that says that if you want your child uh, who grows up in the church to not walk away from their faith, they need about four other people in their lives of faith, adults who are pouring into their lives. And I had that. I had uh, a variety of adults, Deacon Elegons, Deacon Justice Banks, uh, for example, Deacon Jesse Weber, uh, people who took an interest in me and engaged in me. So that was in the church. Then in school, I had some incredible uh, teachers who just, uh, let me tell you a quick story. It's a great story. Uh, In the 10th grade, uh, I got into a fight over a little girl that wasn't interested in me. And I called it a fight. The guy hit, her big boyfriend hit me. I hit the ground. It was the end of the fight. But uh, I got up, went to the boys' bathroom to clean up. And I realized I was flunking out of school. And I knew scripture by then. And I turned to the Lord Jesus in that bathroom. I said, look, Lord, um, it doesn't bother me a lot that I'm flunking out of school. But my grand aunt, uncle is going to be devastated. So I don't want that to happen. So I want you to do three things for me. One, I want to be on the stage with the honor students when I graduate. This is somebody who probably had a 1.0 GPA. Two, uh, I want to go to college. And three, I want my granduncle and aunt to know they haven't wasted their life. Now, while I was having that meeting in the bathroom with Jesus, the entire faculty of Cushetta High School was meeting about me. Who's going to take this kid, Herbert Hamilton? I don't want him. I don't want him. So one of the toughest teachers on the campus, Ms. Gafford, said, I'll take him. Now, Ms. Gaffer was a, 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 an African-American woman in her early 60s, wore a different wig every day, reported to have carried a gun in her trunk, <laughs> would curse you out in a minute <laughs> and threaten your life. So when I got to her class, she said I got transferred. That same day I got transferred from one course to her class. And she said, wait in the hallway. So She came out in the hallway, caught me in my collar with one hand, pushed me up against the locker, took her other hand, finger, shook it in my face and said, boy, if you come in this class acting a fool like you do the rest, I will kill you. Do you understand? <laughs> That's tough love, huh? <laughs> well, you know, 20 minutes later in the class, I raised my hand to say something crazy uh, because that was my M.O., you know, get attention, make people laugh. And out of my mouth comes the right answer. She takes probably 10 seconds, felt like two minutes to me, and affirmed. She said, uh, you know, she said, uh, boy, you've got brains. If you'd go home and study and stop acting crazy, you'd be somebody. Hmm. In retrospect, it was the Holy Spirit talking to me through her. I went home and started studying. It was such a tough uh, journey for me. Every other paragraph, I'm looking up words. I'm crying my way through. By the end of the year, I was in the top five of her class. And that trajectory uh, never ended. Uh, went one first place in regional competition that year. Next year, one first place in the state event. Final year, I won first place in the nation. Uh, and so I had Miss Gafford. I had Mr. Verlin Knighton, who was the vice principal and uh, ag teacher who just poured in me and also had a big board with six holes in it. Uh, and <laughs> just I'm, in case of emergency. I, I, in case of, I, had, I had a meeting with the board the first year quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> board of Education. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> applied to the seat of learning, yes. <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, uh, in addition to working with me in the classroom, brought me to his house, had me to do a number of projects at his home, paid me, fed me, poured into me. 
Uh, there was Mr. Bordelon, who was this tall uh, German white guy who was my English teacher for four years, taught me German and English and pulled me out, poured into me, uh, inspired me, uh, believed in me. Uh, so it was the combination of, of my parents, uh, adults in the church, and teachers and mentors who God used all of them to literally turn my life around so that I'm here talking to you today. It, it, it strikes me that at, at the core, what you're talking about, and interestingly, it's a big focus of the ministry of New Beginnings, but at the core, what you're talking about is discipleship. Absolutely. And, you know, toward that degree, I think perhaps we as believers don't fully capture or appreciate the kind of potential impact that we have on lives that we speak truth to, that we disciple, that we set examples or, or, or mentor. Here you are, 35-something, 40 years later, and you're coming up with the names. Mm-hmm. It's not, oh, I had a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're coming up with the names Absolutely. because they spoke that much truth into your life and had that kind of an impact to essentially be used by God to to craft you to make you like the like the the clay is molded into the man you are today that's exactly right that's exactly that's that's well said and so you know i i I, we use the term at nbcc uh we're trying to reach those who feel far from god uh so that we can help them to become passionate followers of jesus and um part of what helps people to become followers of jesus is that they see lives where Jesus is professed to be Lord, that they actually see credible lives, not perfect lives. I don't think anybody has to be. Nobody expects folk, I think, to be perfect. But they do expect believers to be credible, which includes when we make mistakes, we acknowledge that as well, because we're people of grace and forgiveness. So, yeah, God surrounded me with just remarkable people who refused to give up on me, which translated into my feeling and my knowledge that Jesus had refused to give up on me. At what point did this begin to burn in your heart that you knew God had a call on your life? Well, it was uh, probably my, uh, I was a five-year, uh, in college, five-year double major. So my fourth year, phenomenal year, Grambling State University, met my uh, wife. Uh, we've been married 30 years, Rhonda, and uh, blew me away. And uh, so, so for most of the semester, I was skipping classes and dating. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> She tells me, by the way, you married up. You know that. <laughs> oh, I definitely married up. <laughs> way up. <laughs> so at the end of that semester, she gets on the bus to go back to, to, uh, to come out here to San Francisco. We're in Grambling State University in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I have this burden. I just feel like, well, God has convicted me, man. I just go to the Lord in prayer and say, look, I know I haven't really done well, uh, done what I should do academically. I'm sorry, and, and uh, you've been so good to me. I'll get my stuff together. And then the burden kept increasing. And um, somewhere in a matter of a few days, I realized that God was calling me to, beginning to, potentially was calling me to preach. So I ended up staying at Grambling, Louisiana, uh, for that Christmas period uh, in a place that had no TV, no telephone, Worked on the day, came home, sought the Lord in the evening. And on Christmas <clears throat> Eve, uh, New Year's Eve, 1985-86, a uh, pretty dramatic thing happened. The real quick end of the story was 
uh, I had decided I was going to spend that night in prayer. About 12 midnight, I went to sleep. Uh, started praying, just went to sleep. And um, uh, it was as though somebody touched me on the shoulder. I heard what sounded like a tape in my brain. And it was simply quoting Acts 1-8. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you'll be my mm-hmm. witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then it's like somebody touched me. I woke up and remembered it. Uh, I was getting a little shaky. Like this, you know, I had just done well in my psychology class. And I'm thinking, maybe I'm too fixated on this. I need to kind of just chill out. So I just started praying a little bit. Went back to sleep. Second time, same thing happened this time, the last chapter in Mark. Uh, it starts off with a phrase that's not in that passage. It says, you shall speak of things that are not yet, and they shall come to pass. And everything that is there, uh, you'll speak in other tongues and lay hands on the sick and see them recover, so forth and so on. I woke up. I'm really feeling like I'm coming unglued. Forget this praying thing. I'm just going to go to sleep because I'm really getting nervous. And the third time, uh, the same thing happens. But this time, uh, I can't make out what what I hear, but I can't make out what it's saying. And it's as though there's a shift from my brain to my mouth. I wake up, and the only way I can describe it is I wake up preaching uh, in what uh, uh, charismatic Christians call, I woke up preaching in tongues. I was like fifth gear, just going forth. And, uh, and I was fairly conservative in my theology at times. So I didn't really believe in that. And it had happened. And, uh, and I knew in my heart God had called me to preach his word. So and you suddenly realized the book of Acts is not just a history book. Absolutely. It's a manual. It's a manual. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a brief time out, pick up the story when we return with our conversation. Pastor Herman Hamilton, founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church in Mountain View. By the way, more information about the ministry online at NBCCBayArea.com. That's NBCCBayArea.com. Also mentioned, too, a reprise of this conversation tomorrow, Saturday at 5 p.m. And then, of course, a complete sermon Sunday at 12 noon on the Church of the Week. A timeout back with more in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. With us today in studio, the founding senior pastor of New Beginnings Community Church of Mountain View, Pastor Herman Hamilton, is with us. I was struck, Pastor, by something you said just before the break. You talked about one of the the key elements of the vision of New Beginnings is to reach people who feel far from God. We hear it often said, gee, you want me to believe in a God that I can't see, can't touch, can't have a conversation with one-on-one and hear his voice. I wonder if maybe one of the challenges is that people say they don't see enough of God because we as Christians don't live out a life in such a way that people can see God in us. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the focus, and first of all, we say uh, the resource who feel far from God, we use the word feel intentionally because we believe that God is near all of us. Um, and but if you walk up on somebody anywhere, especially here in Silicon Valley, if you, we use if you use the uh, you know the, the language lost. You say you know are you lost? They say nope. no. I know exactly I where I am. That's right. right. Here. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask them, are you? Do you feel like you're close to God? And many people say no. I don't feel like I'm close to God. Uh, and that opens up an opportunity for conversation. And we. A lot of the folk who come to NBCC are people who have been injured and hurt in church contexts before. And one of the things that have injured and hurt them, one of the ways in which is having, um, you know, people in the church 
in a in a in a in a pretty harsh way be very condemning um, uh, and um, dominant uh, in the church, but then outside the church, they see those same folk who are not living anywhere close to what they're talking. And the hypocrisy has just broken so many people's heart. So what we say at NBCC is we're a place of both grace and truth, and we need both. Uh, there is no tr- grace without truth, uh, but oftentimes you can't hear truth without grace. So Jesus came, uh, the gift he brought was both grace and truth. And so we say, come and be authentic. Come and be transparent. And I try to show that from up front. I try to show I'm not perfect. I'm still growing. I'm still maturing uh, in our preaching and our teaching. And in our small groups, we challenge people. Don't be covering up and hiding. Uh, uh, Be authentic. Be real. Because that's where God's grace among God's people with real accountability can help us to grow and change. But that's a direct reaction to the fact that so many people have heard lots of good talk, but the people behind that talk have been such a horrendous disappointment. So God gets a bad rap because the closest thing I see to God is you. And if yeah. your life is all a big disaster Absolutely. and a mess and you're living like the devil Monday through Saturday and yes. playing the game on Sunday, yes. is it any wonder that people walk away with a very false or misunderstanding of who God is, what his character is, if Christians did a better job at not only making disciples, but being disciples. Absolutely. Not Absolutely. living a perfect life, as you say, because, you know, even Paul said, you work out your salvation. This mm-hmm. is a process that mm-hmm. we're going through. Mm-hmm. We're trying to impact, in, in the cases of some of us that came to Christ late in life, decades of sin and decay and all of the effects of that. Um, and yet in that process of working out our salvation, of growing in the Lord, we should more and more reflect him absolutely and ultimately become a mirror absolutely. of Jesus to others absolutely absolutely that the character of Jesus should be visible in our lives i always say often say how do you measure spiritual growth people talk about we want to i want to grow spiritually okay well how do you measure it what what do you mean when you say you want to grow spiritually and i usually like to throw a triangle up on a board somewhere and and i essentially suggest uh for me growing spiritually is any number of three things. One, it means that my ability to trust God is growing. That I, I'm able, I trust God more this year than I did two years ago. That I can, I can in a concrete way, show you how I'm, my, my ability to trust God is growing. Secondly, my commitment to God is growing. That, that I'm, out of my commitment, I've stopped doing some things that I was doing, or out of my commitment, I've started doing some things uh, that, and, and I can point to that over the last year or two or whatever. And then lastly, my heart is growing, which means, A, it's becoming more tender. So I'm, 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 I'm feeling for people in a way that God feels for people. Uh, and two, it's becoming more generous. And I'm, I'm, I, I see myself giving more rather than and taking less. So uh, that's how we like to challenge our people to, you know, so spiritual growth really falls for me uh, in, in that triangle. Uh, in a in a given way, so and and it's cumulative, isn't it? I, it I mean, is. There are some folks we know that might be twenty years in the Lord, 
that demonstrate 20 years of, of growth and development, layer upon layer, like adding blocks to building a wall or, or building a, a building a building, versus 20 years of experience in Christ that's one year repeated 20 times over? That's exactly Is that the difference? Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you want the layered approach. And at the end of the day, you want to be able to look at, you want people to be able to look at your life and begin to see reflections of the character of Jesus in your life. Not perfect reflections, but reflections nevertheless, uh, which gets us back to the trust, generosity, uh, and the commitment of peace. The last thing I'd say is, so part of what we think is important is to, in order to reach people who feel far from God, help them to begin to become more like Jesus. That's what we mean by saying become passionate followers of his. We also have to build families. And that starts with the church itself becoming. We have, as you know a little bit about our church, we have a widely diverse. We, the church is remarkable. We've got people across all ethnicities. The ethnicities most representative in the Silicon Valley, they're there. We've got people across political lines. So we've got Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and progressives all sitting and worshiping together in the same pew. We've got wealthy people and poor people and folk in between. Uh, and so what does it mean to turn... This highly diverse group of people uh, into family provided it begins with a commitment in Jesus, knowing that when Jesus gave his life on Calvary's cross, he shed his blood for all of us, and it is his bloodline that helps us to begin to find uh, common ground uh, of faith in him. So that's number one. And then secondly, uh, we really believe in small groups. So we've got small groups meeting all over the place. So I'm preaching and teaching on Sunday, but people are meeting in small groups, and they're not trying to uh, memorize Scripture, although that's important, but they're trying to figure out, how do I take the message, the Word of God that we heard taught on Sunday, and actualize it, start to, what's the next step for me, start to walk it out in my life? Is it that iron sharpening iron? Iron sharpening iron, uh, but also... discipleship doesn't take place in a mass no, setting. No, 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 no. Church and, and the gathering together of believers coming together in community and in worship and to sit under a teaching ministry, that's one thing. But, but discipleship, to be effective, to be what discipleship is really created to be, really needs to be that one-on-one. It has it? to be. It has to be. And Scripture says, be doers of the Word, not hearers of the Word. So we've got to try to actualize it. But it's, it's iron sharpening iron, but it's also the mutual effect, or rather I want to say the effect of mutual vulnerability. And accountability, too. And accountability inside of real relationship. And, and it's not to say, and, and people that listen to my program know, that occasionally I have an axe to grind with, with the so-called megachurch. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it tends to be a place where people can come, show up, be seen, but not be known, can hide and never have a chance to have that real relational effect take place. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, in lies the real difference. It is. I mean, and what we try to say to people is, we'll meet you wherever you are on your journey. So if you, if you want to come for a while and hide, that's, if that's okay as long as it's for a while, mm-hmm. right? And then if you're growing, if we're effective, you move from s- sitting in horizontals on a pew to getting in a circle in a small group. And you move from, and it doesn't have to be in this, this order, but you also uh, move to begin to connect with others through serving. 
uh, because you learn a lot about who Jesus is as you serve others. And we have pretty flex, a lot of flexibility around serving. We said, you know, you don't have to join the church to work on our ministries. There are certain levels you have to be a, have a certain level of maturity. But for most of the stuff, you know, you don't even have to know Jesus to park cars, right? So, uh, uh, so we have a lot of flexibility so people can engage in terms of serving, connecting, getting in small groups. All of that is part of our strategy to help build families. And then lastly, transform communities. We are dead serious about making sure that the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ doesn't end uh, when the last song is is finished and we close the door to the sanctuary. Let me have you pause there. We're going to take a time out. I want to talk a bit about the way you modeled that when you were back in Boston. If you've just joined us today in studio, a visit with the founding senior pastor of New Beginnings Community Church in Mountain View, Pastor Herman Hamilton is with us. A brief time out back with more in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation today in studio. We are privileged to have with us the founding senior pastor of New Beginnings Community Church in Mountain View. Pastor Herman Hamilton is with us. By the way, I'll mention service time Sundays at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and for those of you that are late sleepers, 12 noon. The church meets at 1425 Springer Road in Mountain View, and you can get complete details on the web at nbccbayarea.com. That's nb ccbayarea.com or if you prefer the old-fashioned way you can reach them at area code 650-690-2790. Uh, let's talk a bit about community impact. You've, you've spoken, Pastor, to some of the the guiding principles of the ministry, reaching the unchurched, discipling, building families, transforming communities. Now you had some pretty decent success with this. We mentioned you're kind of the boomerang kid, having yeah. come from the Bay Area, gone elsewhere, and then come back. You spent 17 years a senior pastor at Roxbury Presbyterian Church in Boston. There, I understand, you were very influential in helping create a partnership, really, with uh, local schools and leaving that mark of, of impacting the community for the better. Tell us a bit about that. Well, uh, Roxbury Presbyterian Church is a remarkable church in the heart of Boston, a tough community called Roxbury. And about a year and a half in, I was uh, in my the pastor's man's the house where they house the pastors, about a block and a half down from the church. And uh, I heard a shooting uh, on my street, and I came out, and a young man had been shot and killed literally between where I lived and where the church mm-hmm. is. And uh, my son, who at the time was about three or four years old, had just come in out of the yard. I was so traumatized by not only the shooting, but by the symbolism of the location of the shooting between where the pastor lived and the church. And I thought it just represented for me so much the, um, in some ways, the powerlessness of the church to impact hard everyday issues. So we got busy as a result of that and started working with a wide range of Christian leaders across the city, and not only Christian leaders, Jewish leaders, and by the time it was all over, some Muslim leaders became a part of it as well. And we, we, uh, we, we um, and in Boston, it was a big deal just to get Protestants and Catholics oh, together. Oh, indeed. Right? So, <laughs> then you throw in the race thing, then throw in the geography thing. So this is a pretty huge miracle. But what we, what we decided to do was we were going to agree 
to disagree, uh, and all that stuff we disagreed on, just put that to the side. Uh, we're not going to debate that, litigate that. We're not trying to do that. But let's begin to work together on some grassroots issues that we could drive some real change. And out of that came um, some substantive work on uh, helping to pass uh, health care uh, in Massachusetts, which became the template for the Affordability Act now for its strengths and its weaknesses. Uh, I saw 550,000 people overnight go from no health care to health care in Massachusetts. It made a huge difference. Uh, saved lives, literally. Uh, out of that, we partnered with a, w- a number of churches and adopted a school that was about to close called the Dearborn Middle School, literally. And we convinced the superintendent not to close it but to give us two years to t- help turn that school around. And we put together a strategy, and in two years it became uh, – it was uh, designated as the first STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math school uh, in the Roxbury community. It's, it's not just in Roxbury but actually in the state. Uh, it, the building for that school, which is – I think it's an $80 million building now – uh, is being constructed as we speak, uh, and uh, it's making a tremendous difference, uh, the curriculum that they're, in, that they're engaged in. Those are just several examples of how we work together against violence. Uh, I, I got with a group of pastors. We got out of our churches, and at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, we started walking the street, talking to these young men on the street. Um, so, yeah, I, I really do believe that faith has to get out of the pews. Uh, and people have to see Christians with no strings attached out there demonstrating love in concrete ways. I'm struck how that story comes full circle back to your own personal story. Uh, You spoke highly of your great aunt and uncle, the impact that they had on your life, the sense of leading by example. Uh, that in the, the the microcosm in your own life, but then you fast forward many years, here you are pastoring in the inner city, and that still lead by example, the yes. church setting the example yes. uh, to impact the community. Do we need to see more of that? And I ask that question because the church at one time, Pastor Hamilton, set the example for everything, arts, education, yes. theater, entertainment. Yes. And now all of a sudden, we've either decided to take a back seat, completely withdraw in some cases, or in others, sadly, mimic the world. Correct. Working under what I believe is the, the, the false dichotomy that somehow if we just become more friendlier, look more like the world, we'll be less threatening, and therefore more, more folks will show up to church on Sunday. Good point. Yeah, I, I, I think mo- most people, many people, either don't know or forgotten that a lot of our greatest art pieces uh, came out of the church. Uh, they've forgotten that universities like Harvard was founded by Christians. They don't think about the fact that San Francisco is named after uh, a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. St. Francis. They don't think about the fact that Sacramento, the capital of this state, uh, comes from the words uh, sacrament, sacramental, and uh, established by followers of Jesus. Uh, they don't think about the fact that the whole hospital, the ideal of hospital and hospice came from followers of Jesus. They don't think about the fact that even when you read the Gospels, you see the dramatic difference that 
the church made for women and for uh, minorities in that context right there in the Gospels, particularly Luke, for example, uh, how the church has literally drove dramatic change across all these different disciplines in the world. Uh, The church has been a great voice for justice in the world. So, uh, and so they don't think about it or they don't know it. And then lastly, they don't see it enough. I have to say enough because there are a number of churches uh, all across the country and world who are out there and organizations, Christian organizations, who are, who are really trying to make a difference. But it's not enough. And um, I th- so I agree with you. I think if we uh, would get out of our pews uh, and get into the world, um, not to become a part of the world, use that language, but to be a light in the world. Is it a fault of a lack of maybe several things? Proper discipleship, mm-hmm. that sometimes we think salvation is a matter of just like signing up for a club. You raise your hand, you say, yes, I do, you're in, that's the end of the story. We give you your membership card, pay your dues, or in this case, tithe every week, and, <laughs> and you're done. A lack of discipleship, maybe sometimes a lack of bold, biblically-based preaching in the pulpit. Sure. And and a church that's that's emaciated, and I say that because I think of Christ who showed passion Think of the picture of Jesus and the woman at the well. Think about his concern just to feed people who came to hear him speak. But he was also bold enough to go into the temple and say, you shall not defile my father's house, and he kicked out the money changers. So we see several dynamics, several dimensions of the character of Jesus Christ, in all cases showing compassion and love and speaking truth in boldness, and yet sometimes we don't see a church that acts that way. We see a church that instead of taking the lead is cowering in the back or buys into the notion that, well, separation of church and state, we don't want to offend anybody because they might not think as we do or believe as we do, and therefore we're just going to take a back seat. Yeah, and because either of those extremes are easier. What The stuff you and I are talking about trying to be a church of grace and truth, that's extremely difficult. It's messy. It's work. It's work. It's messy. Uh, it's not an exact science. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's challenging. But it's worth it at the end of the day. And, and we don't profess to have it all right, right? And uh, I think part of what's unique about NBCC is, you know, we try to create space for people to disagree with us. I mean, uh, we've taken on all the tough issues, right? Uh, about a year ago, I preached a whole message on same-sex relationships and uh, the biblical view of, of marriage and relationships. And yet we said to people, uh, you may disagree with us. Uh, don't run. from. We want to create space for you to be here because we're going to love on you and, and, uh, and, um, and, and hopefully give you time to see and experience the power of Jesus Christ. And an encounter with him will change minds. I mean, uh, just ask Saul. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've took up the issue of race, uh, which is a very challenging issue because we have a very um, uh, multi-ethnic congregation. So in July, when the police, uh, the, the issues of racial violence and police shooting was at its hottest point until recently, uh, we stepped in the middle of that and um, and uh, launched a series called Be Champions of Hope. 
and really took seriously uh, what do we actually, as followers of Jesus, what are we called to do inside of this? I, this past Sunday, I just preached a message on um, radical politics. Here we are in the most divisive uh, uh, political era in America's history. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus now? Uh, how do we be light and salt in the world? And uh, and took some time to really kind of lay that out, regardless of your party or your or your political perspective. Let me ask you to pause there. I'm going to do something I never do, but I'm going to ask you to stay for one more segment. All right. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to our conversation with Pastor Herman Hamilton, founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church in Mountain View. More details, by the way, about the church and Pastor Hamilton's ministry online at NBCCBayArea.com. That's NBCCBayArea.com. A brief time out. Back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. While we're taking the extraordinary step of asking Pastor Herman Hamilton, our guest today, to remain for a couple of more moments, we've been talking about not only his journey, but the ministry and the impact of the ministry of New Beginnings Community Church right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. By the way, let me mention, they meet Sunday mornings, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and 12 noon at 1425 Springer Road in Mountain View. And to get complete details about the ministry, how you can get involved, Check them out on the web at NBCCBayArea.com. That's NBCCBayArea.com. We were talking before the break, Pastor Hamilton, about some of the issues that are facing America today. And let's face it, we've, we've gone through tough times before. Mm-hmm. We've dealt with a massive racial divide in this country that led to a civil war. We've gone through a world war, a Great Depression, another world war. We've gone through some of the turmoil that was the 1950s and 60s and, and the nuclear clock at 1159, 59 seconds. Mm-hmm. We've always managed to survive, but in each and every case... The church has always had a loud voice. Mm -hmm. The church has not recoiled from these things, but rather said, where can we step in and be truth seekers, truth tellers, and pour some of the oil upon the water of troubled times, so to speak? Mm. Uh, Toward that end, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. You describe a church that looks like heaven. You talk about the fact that there are rich people, poor people. Republicans, Democrats, and maybe even an independent or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk about virtually not only the makeup of the church leadership, but the folks that sit in the pews on Sundays looking like you said, let's pick a different race or culture from every continent and spot on the map. Let's create an environment here on earth Mm. that looks very much like what we're going to see in heaven. Mm. Amen. All I can say is it's, it's a work that God is doing. Really, I, I can't take any personal credit. We're trying to be good stewards of it. Uh, we're and we're not trying to be artificially uh, good stewards. Meaning, let's avoid the tough issues uh, so we can keep this together. Do you have to be intentional? And and I raise that question because I'm struck by the fact that in the current struggle of issues of racism in America today, there are movements and protests and police cars set on fire and things of that sort. And yet there's a perspective rolling back the clock 50 years ago and saying, well, what led to the passage of some of the most incredible groundbreaking legislation in our history, Mm -hmm. the 1964 Civil Rights Mm -hmm. Act, the 65 Voter Rights Act, Mm -hmm. that was birthed 
not out of violent protest on the streets, but birthed right out of the church. Absolutely. The heartbeat of the church was at the very front. It was the word of God that was at the very front of that movement. That's right. That's right. Powered by um, weekly meetings where Christians were gathering every week, praying, singing, and then getting their marching orders about how to engage. So people see what's going on right now, and there's a, there's a, a, I think, valid sense of frustration. I think we see frustration both in terms of race relations on the police department side and on the citizen side. Is the key to bringing resolution to this then? The church, and I ask that question because, let's face it, God is in the reconciliation business. I mean, the number one thing he did was send his son to die on a cross that we might be reconciled unto him. I would think if anybody has the way of modeling what real reconciliation looks like, it ought to be the church. Absolutely. And look, so theologically, we have the gospel, which is all about reconciliation. Uh, And practically, here's, here's the point. At least for NBCC, this is true. In one congregation, we have uh, African Americans and white, uh, in terms of the racial piece, we've got police officers and the folk who are being arrested by police officers, all in the same congregation. I think this ought to be a golden moment for the church Mm -hmm. because the church has the opportunity, uh, and we're trying to lead in this area, But the church everywhere has an opportunity to bring people together, to create a safe space, to get people into relationship with one another. Because a huge part of this is that you don't know me and I don't know you. So we relate to each other based on whatever our stereotypes are. And preconceived notions. Absolutely. But if, if I get to know you and you get to know me, and by the way, if we both happen to be committed to Jesus, man, a lot of hope comes out. It's powerful. That is powerful, that is, that is redemptive level powerful. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely How do we put feet to this? People talk about, let's pray, we're going to stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning praying that God does something. I think of all of the rallies that have been held down through the years and quoting uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14, and, and uh, we've tended to cite that passage of Scripture and shake our fist toward the sinners out there and say, yeah, that's right, you people need to get it together. You need to get right with God. Failing to properly read that Scripture that recognizes that it begins with, if my people that's right. who are called, we're called by, by my, my name, name will that's humble exactly themselves, right. pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. God that's is, in right. fact, indicting the church. Absolutely. 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 And I'll just give you one practical example, at least how we try to do it at NBCC. For example, when we took on the question of race, uh, out of the uh, message where I talked about the solution being getting to know each other, we launched an effort called Connect Four. And essentially what we challenged our people to do was, look, here's four different ways that you need to connect with someone who doesn't look like you and have a conversation. Uh, You can do it in your family. You can do it in your small group here at the church. You can do it one-on-one, or you can do it in what we call Connect Four Groups, which we structured across diversity. That's number one. Secondly, I preached a series on it, so I had to teach people how to do it. So you can't just say, go do it. How do I have these conversations? Uh, And I got an email from uh, one of our white uh, members uh, who loves me and loves NBCC, but radically disagreed the first message that I preached on this series. 
I said, so he, he sent me a, a private email. I thanked him for it. I said, listen, why don't you and I have, an, have a conversation about this? And I'm going to videotape it. And I'm going to use it to teach the entire congregation how to have these kind of conversations, these tough conversations. Mm-hmm. To his courageous credit, he agreed. And we did that. So we taught it. And then we challenged people to do it. Uh, and help people to understand uh, we got to where we are around race or whatever the issue you want to name, one relationship at a time, one bad relationship, one bad conversation mm-hmm. at a time. We'll get out of it one good conversation, one good relationship at a time. And it's interesting how as our time winds up, it brings us full circle to where we began speaking over an hour ago, and that is – it is modeling discipleship. Absolutely, it, It's pouring your knowledge, your awareness, your relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and with God into the life of a new young believer mm-hmm. to help them, as, as Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ, to understand what it means to not only know Christ, but to follow him, be that mirror that we talked about right. earlier right. that more adequately reflects to the world the real character of God. If, right. if, if people say God's a bad guy and the only picture that they have of God is you and me, That's right. uh, that indictment is not on God. It's that on indictment's on us. Right. It calls upon us to say, I need to examine my life, my walk, my relationships, my thinking, my speaking. To see if it's in order with the character of God that we see demonstrated in Scripture, or is it not? That's and exactly if not, right. why not? That's exactly right. And uh, lifestyles of faith requires a willingness to risk. Right? It's it's a willingness to expose yourself. It's a willingness to be hurt in the name of following Jesus. The people who are having these hundreds of conversations around race uh, recently at NBCC, they they said, you know, we might get hurt doing this. But it's worth it. And I think of the image of Christ hanging on the cross. Yes. There you go. That's the... Who took on all the risks. Yes. Yes. Who willingly said, I will be hurt. That's right. I will take on the pain of the sin of the world. Yes. I will become sin. Yes. That through my shed blood, we might see reconciliation between the creator and the creation. And so there is something to be said of risk that was modeled by very Jesus himself. And so then that leaves us with the question, while God doesn't call upon us per se to risk as he did at the level he did, because none of us can do that. Mm -hmm. And yet he says, I am the model for risk and vulnerability. Yes. But in through that risk and being vulnerable, we can see God do great things as we more adequately reflect the character of God, the passion of God, the, the, the unlimited mercy of God, who so loved the world, but while we were yet sinners, he would send his son to die on our behalf. 
some powerful thoughts, you say, hey, I want more. Guess what? Go to church on Sunday. <laughs> 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 12 noon, New Beginnings Community Church. They meet at 1425 Springer Road in Mountain View. You can get complete details on the web at nbccbayarea.com. That's nbccbayarea.com. An abbreviated version of this conversation will air tomorrow night at 5 p.m. And then, of course, a complete message by Pastor Herman Hamilton, Sunday at 12 noon, right here on KFAX. Pastor Hamilton, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.